All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. Force fetch. What is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it. You and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. going on everybody and welcome to another rousing episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. It's Bob and Kevin here. We got a good episode coming up with one of my favorite people in the outdoor slash waterfowl industry. Our good buddy. Big, big fan of this guy. He's just always been good to us. I love him. His name is Ira McCauley. He uh, is the owner of Mo Marsh uh, until he sold it. He's a big partner in Habitat Flats. Savage duck hunter savage businessman and savage turkey hunter which we dabbled in in today's episode so stick with us we had a really really fun time catching up with him but first do us a favor if you enjoy the episode if you enjoy the instagrams and the youtubes and all the other stuff that we put out there all the effort we put into helping people along the way getting their dogs ready for duck season and hunt tests and all that good stuff check us out on patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters it's like buying Kevin and I a beer, and it helps us get new equipment, which we just got. We look like Joe Rogan over here trying to figure it out. We look, we're look, we like, uh, I don't even know what we look like. We look like a bunch of idiots with some boom sticks in front of our face, but it's fun, it's cool, and we appreciate your support. It's a great community of folks. We do bi-weekly happy hours where you get to hang out with us, drink a beer, and talk dogs and answer your questions face-to-face. Um, it's more in tune with me and you. So let me help you jump on patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Also, if you want to check out LoneDuckOutfitters.com, you can get you a hat or a hoodie or something cool like that to show your support for the show. We appreciate it. It means a lot to us. You can get your Dogtra 1900S, your Edge RTs, or any of the, the good gear on there that uh, they support us. You can check it out. So uh, speaking of that, the old Dogtra sponsor of the show big fans they are uh for the last 10 12 it's probably been 12 or 13 years now 
I've been using Dogtra products, and the number one thing I like about them is their customer service. The second thing I like about them is the quality of gear that they provide us. So when you push that button, you know it's at the right level. Next up, Purina, baby, that pro plan, the food that fuels the truck, a lone duck. Purina, baby, I just ordered me a pallet. Pallet, pallet? Oh, yeah. 48 bags of Purina Pro Plan. That one hurt. A couple of those. Yeah, I know you will, but dang, that was uh hefty. That was a hefty nut for this month, but you know what? I wouldn't I mean, you got to do it. Shoot. But you know what I love? The dogs are looking good on it. The dogs are performing good on it, and you can get it anywhere. So check them out, Purina Pro Plan. I feed the 3020 to the big dogs, and then they've got a large breed puppy formula that's really good that um, our young dogs are on. Next up, Gunner Kennels, baby. Man's best kennel. Do you see their uh, food crate back, back in Back in stock. Back in action. Yep. We've had a lot of questions about the food crate roll in over the last couple months. Um, I don't want to say surprisingly, but, like, everyone asks about the kennels, the food crate, you know, you've got one, I've got one. It's super handy, waterproof, dogs can't get into it. It's a nice unit. I keep it in my truck. Made in America, too. So if you support that kind of stuff and a company that believes in the unspoken bond like we do, keeping your dog safe rolling down the road, Gunner Kennels. Next up, Kent. And you know what I do. Mmm. <laughs> Bismuth. I've got a t-shirt design. Kevin and I were kind of talking about it before the podcast. I really want, I've got an idea and it has to do with me just saying, mm, but you know what to do. Check them out. Kent Cartridge on Instagram. Great company, great people, and they're providing killer pun intended. Ooh, I kind of like that. Shotgun shells. Yeah, baby. Next up, smoke them if you got them. The Traeger Grills. They just came out with a new one that looks like Elon Musk designed it. This thing has everything you need to smoke that meat. And uh, I got to be honest, I'm like, now that I use mine, I'm like a little jealous of all the features that sucker's got. So maybe someday I'll get to smoke in a bigger smoker. But the Traeger Grills, man, and it makes me look good as a cook, which I'm not. But uh, yeah, you can you can be a very novice smoker of meats, and the Traeger will help you get there and make your dinner special. So smoke them if you got them, baby. Traeger Grills. Next up, Standing Stone Kennels slash Standing Stone Supply. Now we just did, I did a podcast with Cat Ethan and Cat, but I did a podcast with Cat, and we talked a ton about you know owning your own business as a dog trainer. It was a ton of fun. So check that out. That should be dropping in the next week or so. But uh, one of the things that everyone asks me is, what whistle do I use? For whatever reason, everyone cares what whistle I use. And so uh, I did a little quick video that will probably be hitting Instagram, talking about a whistle, and Standing Stone Supply offers them. It's a sport dog peeless whistle. I like the peeless whistle because it doesn't stick when it gets cold out. It doesn't stick when you get spit in it. Um it's, it's a good little unit, and so Ethan and Kat put it on their website, Standing Stone Supply. So support uh, your local dog trainer and, and supply company, Standing Stone Supply, baby. All right, let's get into the show. We got Ira McCauley. 
the man, the myth, the legend. Ira, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the show, buddy. How you been? I'm good. It's good to hear your deep and sultry voice, Bob Owen. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. You've been a pretty busy man, um, expanding different things. And you were, Kevin just pulled it up. You were episode two. Holy wow. smokes. Wow. And I can still remember the moment you told us you had a Chesapeake and he used to pee on every blade of grass coming yeah. back with a I'm bird. sure I told you guys the story when, when he peed on that lady's head sitting in that chair on the beach. You don't remember that part? Oh, yeah. Oh, we're having a nice stroll down the beach down in Louisiana. And the dogs are running along in front of us. I'm not paying a whole lot of attention, you know. And all of a sudden, I hear this screaming. This lady jumps up and starts throwing stuff at my chassis. And, of course, he starts barking at her. And I'm like, holy crap. So I go up there. And the poor lady was just sitting there listening to some music, enjoying the sunshine. And he strolled up behind her. You know, she was in one of those, uh, you know, those chairs that ratchet back. So she's, like, laying flat and pissed right on her head. <laughs> you gotta mark territory. Oh, so much unspoken bond shit right there. That was awesome. That's Jesse for you. How did you even wrangle that situation? Like, how did? Oh, dude, she was so far. She was so far gone. There was gonna be no talking my way out of it. I was. I. I tried for about a half second, and I was like, "I've been down this path before. We're out of here. Good luck to her." Yeah. Leave the scene of the crime. We should have had him on a leash. Listen. Yeah. He should have been leaning he back. Was. <laughs> he was. On, he was on an electronic leash. I just wasn't paying any attention. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, one of the, one of the things that everybody probably knows you about, or about you, is Mo Marsh and Habitat Flats. And I think we kind of dove into it on episode two. So if you all haven't listened to it, maybe check back in. But talk it was to, three and a half years ago. It was three and a half years ago. So a long time. tell us a little bit about the stuff going on at Habitat Flats that's kind of changed over the years and evolved and grown. Well, at Habitat Flats, uh, you know, since then, um, we, we built a new location, the Grand. Um, it's about five miles from our lodge in Sumner. I'm going to get this ringer turned off here. There we go. And, uh, oh, I think it's about 1,600 acres of ground. Eh, a little more than that down there. 1,800 acres that we own. And then we lease about, oh, shoot, I don't know, probably 20,000 acres down there. And we've got a big, beautiful lodge. I don't remember how big it is, but it's it's really big. Maybe, uh, oh, God, I I'd hate to even guess. I don't know. It, it's it's big, and it's really nice. Um, well, it sleeps twenty four clients, and then all our you know our our guides and everybody stay there too. But it's got twenty four, so twelve double occupancy, single bathroom per room. But next year we're switching things up, and we're going to only hunting twelve people a day single occupancy individual bathroom so you know we're up in the price up in the level of service upping uh the quality of the experience even more and making it more exclusive that's pretty cool i think people definitely a certain kind of clientele enjoys 
quality over quantity. And then I would say even with hunting, that would be a, a big one, right? Like I don't want to share the blind with so many dudes that I don't know, you know, who shot that duck, who shot that duck and, and what have you. Have you found that to be a thing? And that's why we're scaling it in a different direction. Yeah. I mean, we have some people that come, certainly not all of them, but some people that come that, that won't come back because they want that level of exclusivity. They don't want to share a bedroom with anyone else. They don't want it to be a mixed group. They don't want it to be a big party. Um, they want it to be, you know, low key and high end customer service and all that stuff. So, you know, our lodge in Sumner, we can hunt 32 guests out of there and that gets to be kind of a rodeo, you know, it's a party every night and, uh, it's a madhouse, you know, I mean, heck there's in the mornings, there's, you know, 55, 60 people running around all trying to get organized and the rats herded. I shouldn't say rats, the cats herded before, uh, before the sun comes up and where they need to go and all that. So it can just be a little crazy and overwhelming. And some people love that. And other people are like, uh, man, you know, we just want, want something that's much more low key. So it's it, this year, you know, it's kind of a test deal. And, and so we'll see how it goes. And where is that located? What state is that in? The Both those lodges are in Missouri. So we sold, you know, I think we still had our Kansas lodge probably when we talked, we sold that, we sold our farms out there. We still have our lodge in Canada, but of course, COVID kept us out of there for the most part. We took a few people that were vaccinated last year that had deposits. Um, and we got out of Arkansas, the Arkansas snow goose madness. We, we did kind of re- gone full circle and it's, it's turned into, you know, pretty crazy. So we got out of there. Talk to me about the migration over the last few years, you know, especially, you know, we're from New York, right? So we traveled to South Carolina, but I don't ever get out Midwest. So I'm not as savvy with it, but from the, the, the rumor mills is that the flyways shifting a little bit. Would you agree? Would, do you have any insight on that? I would not, I wouldn't agree with that in a broad scope. Um, you know, I think that I, you talk to the people out West, they say it's shifting East. You talk to the people out East, they say it's shifting West. Luckily we're kind of in the middle. Um, I don't know. You hear that a lot, especially around St. Louis. There's so many factors. Uh, you know, I, I think that it depends on the year some, and I, I'm sure that there's, there's environmental factors. Like I, I remember Oh gosh, I don't remember the year, but it was maybe eight years ago, something like that. We had a huge snowstorm, like over two feet of snow in in all of Missouri, and it pushed all the geese into Illinois. And ever since that year on the return migration north, a much, much higher percentage of the snow geese have come back through Illinois when they used to come. You know, there were some that came through central Missouri, some that came through Western Illinois and those geese are sticking in Illinois more and going further North and cutting across Iowa ever since that big snowstorm. And it's gotten better, you know, it's gotten back more towards the way that it used to be, but man, that pattern was really evident for several years after that big snowstorm. I I haven't seen anything like that on the duck side in the fall. 
I gotcha. Do you think, I mean, farming practices has to be a part of it as well. And with that large swath of land that you guys have owned and slash leased, you're farming it for ducks. Well, no, I mean, we, we farm what we own for ducks. Mm-hmm. It's managed wetland. All the rest of that's dry field. So, you know, in Missouri, we don't have a ton of wet habitat. You know, we're, we're wetland poor. Uh, we're a fairly dry state. We're not super swampy statewide. We don't have a ton of duck habitat in the state. Um, and then you've got to separate mallards from everything else. So a mallard will live on the river or wherever it's got open water. And then when times are tough, it'll go feed in the dry fields. Right. Mm -hmm. But no other duck does that. So when people are talking about agriculture and corn and all that, you've got to make a distinction between a gadwall and a mallard. So if guys are saying in Louisiana or Arkansas, we're not seeing any ducks, they must all be at habitat flats in the corn. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know where they are, but, they're gone from here. Now this year was very unusual. This is the only year that I really remember in the last long, long, long time where we had odd ducks through the season. That's very unusual for us. I mean, typically after Thanksgiving, we hardly shoot anything but mallards and honkers. So um, this year we had, we had odd ducks all the whole season, all the way through. And I don't know really what to attribute that to. I, you know, it was warm. Um, but uh, I don't know. That was definitely a notable difference. The other thing that has been uh, the opposite of what most people are saying, but definitely factual in our part of the world, is that our ducks have been early the past five years. I mean, you know, historically, we'd start to get our first mallards in any sort of numbers uh, around Veterans Day, so around the 10th of November. And the last five years, we've we've had quite a few mallards around, you know, third week October. And <clears throat> so our ducks have been early the last five years in general. And, uh, the you know, and I keep detailed records on all our harvest stuff, everything that happens on my farm. And... Um, you know, every year the numbers are about the same. In 2020, they were down about 20%. Our harvest was down about 20%. Hmm. I felt like it was going to be lower than that because we didn't have many flocks. Um, there were lots of, you know, singles and pairs and whatever, but not a lot of big flocks. Uh, this year it was much better, much more back to normal, and our harvest numbers were back to where they've always been. So Interesting. So for us in in our neck of the woods, we've found that, you know, your early season, that first week, week and a half, they all get banged on, you know, we have a good time, and then they get stale. And because we've had such mild winters, you know, I remember growing up on Halloween, we'd be in snowsuits, and it might be snowing, and you're going trick-or-treating. Now you're in... You know, you're taking the kids in jeans and a, and a flannel, and it's 50 degrees out at 8 o'clock at night. And so we're not getting that push until end of, you know, sometimes until December. Yeah, December, January. And so, I mean, it's kind of surprising to hear that your ducks are coming sooner when I would say typically ours are coming down right at the tail end of our season. 
Last five years, they've been early, very early. Yeah, <laughs> that's super interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why. I just did. Are they coming from the Dakotas to you? Well, I mean, most of our birds would come from Saskatchewan and Manitoba, a few from Alberta. Um, you know, this was an interesting year for our farm. We normally only kill one or two banded ducks a year. So, you know, about one in a thousand is typically banded that we shoot. This year we shot eight. Dang. And uh, I think almost all of the bands came from southern banding sites. So like Kentucky, Mississippi, Tennessee. You know, I think we did have one or two from Saskatchewan, but the vast majority of them were from the southeast. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to equate it to. And, and then, you know, every duck season, I feel like I'm learning more and then knowing way less. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. We're, we're just scouting yeah, our like, butt off. You know, the satellite telemetry stuff is, is really interesting. You know, a lot of the ducks that they banded in Arkansas with transmitters on them came back right through, you know, right back through the middle of us. Hmm. In fact, one just left. The Drake just left our farm at Grand Pass there at the Grand. Uh, a guy just sent me an email. It was like, I don't know, maybe four or five days ago. Is, do they have a website that you can track those ducks and see where they are in the country? Well, I think there's several depending on which organization it is, you know. Uh, God, I can't remember. I'd have to look at the link to see which which banding operation uh, that that one was from. But, um, you know, I think that there's several different ones that kind of have their own website that, that keeps track of their ducks. I, I don't know if there's a central one or not. That's cool. That's cool. So, you know, one of the new adventures you guys started, um, and maybe give a, a little shout out to your, your co-host, but you ended up starting your own podcast. How's that been going? I've, I've been a, a faithful listener. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, it's fun. You know, I mean, um, we're just doing it to really to try to hopefully make a difference in, in somebody's life where they, you know, decide that they want to take a risk here or there and, and get out of just the rat race of, you know, a paycheck that comes in and, and weekends only to get away or whatever. So, you know, we interview people that we think have interesting stories or people that are industry people that, might be able to shed some light on, you know, their experience to get into the industry and what it's been like for them and kind of what that, you know, what that travel's been like. Um, we've taken a high this here lately just because of uh, of species, and but I think tomorrow we're striking it back up. We got Jimbo coming on tomorrow talking about the Drake deal and turkey hunting and whatever we always talk about. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's cool, Joe. You know, Joe had been asking me to do this for years and uh, do some sort of a podcast. I started back, you know, when I, before I sold Omar. And uh, so we finally just decided to do it. And it's not for money or anything else. You know, it's just to uh, get our, keep our community engaged. And when I say our community, I mean our community of, of people that hunt and enjoy the outdoors and all that stuff, you know. Yeah, it's a so just to give everybody a little bit more deep dive, it's like in it's entrepreneurial. It's a little bit of business savvy. 
Um, some of the ones I've listened to, and I wouldn't mind asking these questions as well to give them a little taste, a little tidbit, but buying property and managing property for, for ducks and, and, and clubs, if you want to form a club and, um, you know, I've always appreciated your story and how hard you've worked to build, you know, your empire and, and chasing your dream. And so to, to sit back and listen to YouTube banter on entrepreneurship, man, I do it every day. I barely sleep. I work hard and it's, it's just refreshing to hear other people who've done that. And then on the other side of it are enjoying the fruits of their labor and effort. Anyways, I'll jump kind of back into it. So the, the podcast really revolves around entrepreneurship, duck clubs, you know, buying farms and, you know, using, I, I guess the hard part for me to even fathom is, is like having that resource, financial resource that you've built via your other businesses and then segueing it into your passion of, of duck hunting and finding properties to purchase. Um, so can you maybe walk through how you started that journey and, and maybe like the first one, first piece of land that you bought for duck hunting and what that was sure. like? I mean, yeah. So, you know, I was just like pretty much everybody, um, had no money, less than no money, loved duck hunt, went when and where and how I could. And, um, you know, I was, I was lucky to have some friends that had some really cool places and, uh, I wanted to have my own place. And so, you know, I, I got out of that school and started working and still had no money and, and had a chance to buy a really, really great duck hunting place. There's the wiener dog. And, um, you know, the banker was asking for a personal financial statement and 30% down. And I'm like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And so we lost the opportunity to buy that place. And I was like, man, you know, someday I really want to prioritize buying a place. And so um, another place, the one that we own now, came up for sale and, and we still didn't have any money. And so I begged, borrowed, stole, uh, got a girlfriend that had a house, talked her into selling it. And using that money towards this duck farm and saved every penny that I could. And uh, so we, you know, we, we ended up making this deal happen through an owner financing deal. And, uh, you know, just did some, got lucky with some good people and had them, you know, take a chance on, on us doing what we said we were going to do. And, uh, you know, it just, that was how we acquired Lux Grove, which kind of, you know, our main piece of property there. And you still and, have uh, it. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, and of course now we have lots of other stuff, but, but you know, it's, it, I, guys all the time will say, well, you're lucky, you know, you've got this and that you're not like, you're not like me. You're not like everybody else. But the truth of the matter is, you know, part of the reason we've done the podcast is to, help people look at things maybe through a little bit different set of lenses where they're like, you know, maybe if I did this or did that or wrote this person a letter or saved a little bit of money or came up with a creative plan on, on how I could make this work, I could have my own place or I could have my own business that gives me a little more freedom. And us being duck hunts or duck hunters, we're always like, we're not thinking about money. We're thinking about 
well, I can go duck hunting more or I can have a better spot or <laughs> right. whatever. And so, you know, just trying to give people that, that, you know, do have some interest in that, uh, let them know that, you know, not everybody that has a place to go hunt was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And there is a way for them to do it. It's just a matter of figuring out how to get it done, you know, and, and you're probably going to have to take some risks. But like I always say, take the risk when you're young. I mean, what do you have to lose? If you have nothing, what do you have on the line? You know what I mean? Like now, I'm much more conservative than I was back then mm -hmm. because uh, I don't want to lose what I have. Right. How do you go about finding properties that you think are going to be a duck mecca or already are? Uh, is there resources that you can guide people down that? So if they live in New York or... Texas or Tennessee. Oh no, man. No, you've got to be there. You've got to be there. The the good ones rarely come on the market. And even if they do, by the time you figure out it's good, it's 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 been sold. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So the the whole reason that, that we've got, you know, good properties right here is because we are right here. You know what I mean? And we right. know like which places are good or which places we think could be good, you know, but, but anybody habitat flats, the same thing. I mean, you know, you can't own it all. You, you run out of cash. So you try to make good purchases, ones that you think, you know, are a good fit with, with your assortment and what you have and what you have going on and, uh, and try to piecemeal together what you, what you can because nobody at least, definitely none of us have enough money to just go buying whatever happens to come for sale. You know, property right. is, is so expensive and, and, uh, you just run out of, run out of cash. Yeah. So I had a buddy or I still have a buddy. This he's, you guys would probably get along splendidly. He is, uh, the quintessential wheeler and dealer and he wanted, he was in college, no money, nothing. And he basically found a place in South Dakota, like a rundown shack shed with a little bit of swampiness around it and good duck hunting, right? They went in college and went and checked it out. And uh, he basically got all his college buddies and duck buddies to say like, hey, three grand, three grand, three grand, three grand. And they all pitched in and formed a little club. And he was able to go in with, I don't know, $25,000 and buy this little tiny thing that was surrounded by great habitat and a house and, and then flipped that and into another one and into another one and into another one. And, and he just grew and grew and he's got a place in South Carolina. That's just a killer duck spot. And that's how he got started. It was just like pulling a couple guys and a couple grand and made it happen. And it's inspiring because, you know, I think about these things, but then there's sometimes not enough time in the day and I need to just get up earlier or figure it out, but it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is you've got to be ready to pull the trigger. I mean, you know, when a good place comes up, man, they don't last very long. So, you know, if you, if you're going to, I've seen a lot of people lose out myself included at times on, on really good deals on really good hunting spots, just because, they didn't have everything prepared or they didn't have the knowledge of the area to really know that they needed to pull the trigger and act fast. And then you, you lose it. And guess what? 
it's never going to come for sale again in your lifetime, most likely. No. Yeah. It's, it, I would imagine it's rare for somebody to want to sell unless it, now this is a question I had for you is, do you buy property to flip, if you will? So hunt it for a little while, manage it, get it a little better, da, 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 increase its value and flip it. Or does, is that not really in the game because you're, you're running an outfit as well? Well, we have, but but generally that's not uh, that's not something that Habitat Flats tries to do. Like I'll buy properties and and flip them and improve them on my own, but generally they're not hunting properties. You know, there's something I buy at auction, or I think it's got a better price, or I think I've got some way to improve it, and. Uh, so, you know, I, I probably do that more than the business does. We've sold some properties over over the years, and generally it was more of a deal where <clears throat> we thought that the place was going to be able to take more pressure than it could. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's great for somebody that hunts six times a year or whatever, but it's not ideal for someone that's needing a spot you can go to every other day or something. Sure, yeah, or, you know, I know the club in South Carolina, it's Wednesdays and Saturdays. If you can only hunt on Sunday, you don't get to go. you got to go Wednesdays and Saturdays. Yeah, well, that doesn't pencil out very well when you're running a for-profit business. So, <laughs> No, it doesn't, does it? Absolutely, no. absolutely. So talk to me uh, a little bit. One of your other passions that I am more novice in but but thoroughly enjoy is chasing turkeys. And so for New York, we just opened up uh, Sunday – How's your turkey season going? Man, I got to tell you, um, I don't know what you guys bring and like, and bear with me, I got to go flip these burgers. So if I get a little sketchy, I'll fix it here. But You're good. Um, I had an incredible turkey season. Um, I hunted for myself, ate and shot. That's that's about as good as uh, those eight days. So, you know, I don't think I've ever had a run that was that strong. You you did break up on us. Eight days and how many turkeys? I shot ten, and uh, <laughs> oh I saw nineteen die in those eight. Holy crap! So obviously, I went to several states to do that, but sure, sure. Yeah, it was it was really good, really good. What do you think makes Usually it? Usually, it's more like I scratched out four and uh, hunted twenty days or something like that. You know what I mean? E, uh, that, yeah, I do know what you mean. And I wouldn't say I got four. <laughs> I'll hunt twenty days and yeah. see so, four. Oh yeah. Well, we're we're at the last week now, so we're you know we close Sunday. And we're just getting leaves on the trees here in Missouri. So normally it looks like summertime, you know, by this time in May. And uh, this year we're we're about, I'd say we're about two weeks behind. Gotcha. What do you think makes a good turkey hunter? That's a good question. Uh, well, it all depends on what kind of turkeys you're hunting. Um, well, not, not Missouri, a fine turkey. <laughs> yeah, not a white one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here in Missouri, you know, uh, it requires a lot of patience a lot of times, and sometimes you can be a little more aggressive. You know, this year was really challenging because everything was so far behind. The birds rarely gobbled once they got, you know, past 
shoot 640, they were pretty much done because they were all hinned up and the woods were so open, it was hard to get around. So I got lucky and oh, on Tuesday, the first week, we, we were had birds all around us early. It was real cold, they didn't gobble good. And we struck, struck up a pair at 11 and that lasted about three minutes. And then I shot my second one at like 5.50. He flew down real early and got him before he got to the hens. But, uh, you know, I just got lucky, got on the right birds this year. But a lot of times, especially where I live, you know, you might only have one or two birds that you're going to have a chance at, maybe none. And so you don't want to go running over them. You know, you don't want to be too aggressive mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, when we go out west to Kansas or South Dakota or Oklahoma or Wyoming or wherever, you know, there's more turkeys and you can be a lot more aggressive and they, they like for you to be aggressive, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you called that much at an Eastern, you'd never hear him again a lot of the time, you know. Is there so, uh, a, a type of hunting that you prefer more where you can be more aggressive and really chase them down? Or do you like to be more patient, wait for them? Well, well, I think everybody likes lots of turkeys and being able to be an aggressive caller and hear lots and lots of gobbling, right? So yeah, that's fair. That's probably more exciting. But hunting Easterns is challenging, and, you know, it's pretty rewarding to kill these big old Easterns um, when they're – and they can be really tough, you know, and so I think what makes a, a good turkey hunter is just having someone that has good woodsmanship, knows how to use the terrain to get around and not bust turkeys and, you know, be aggressive when you need to and be patient when you need to and be confident because you're not always going to be right. So, you know, kind of pay attention to what's going on, try to get, get things stacked in your favor and, uh, make a decision and go with it until you got to pivot uh, because, you know, you're never, some of them are going to always bust you and some of them are always not going to come. And that's just part of it. You know, mm -hmm. do, what kind of calls do you typically use or do you have the whole assortment and pick and choose depending on the bird? No, I never run a slate call. Um, I either run a, a diaphragm and, uh, I've been using Bo, Bo Brooks uh, um, calls here the last couple of years as far as diaphragm calls go. And uh, and then I, I always carry a box call. I, 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 there's a lot of turkeys, in my opinion, in my experience, that'll hit a box that will not hit a, hit a diaphragm call. Hmm. And then I use just my voice quite a bit, really. Um, you know, when they're close, a lot of times I'll just, I won't even open my mouth, you know, I'll just make the noise with my mouth, mouth shut and it's just real subtle. And there's times where I cannot get them to quite finish. And sometimes that'll, that'll trip their trigger. But I use box call a lot for locating and, you know, there's just some birds that just like that box. And, and then there's some other ones that like a diaphragm better, but really a box call is, uh, you know, it, it'll get a response a lot of the time. Is that, is that how you, go about doing is try and get a response then maneuver the land or do you just sit tight and let them come what goes on in your head when you do it well a lot of it depends on how well i know the land a lot of it depends on if i can try to make things work more in my favor you know i always give them a chance to come 
but then if things aren't really working out and of course there's a risk of moving but you know i'll make a decision on whether i feel like i ought to just sit and wait or if i feel like i ought to go get in that bird's bubble right so we we all know that there's times where a turkey will answer you every every time but won't come and he's let's say 200 yards away mm-hmm. and he's gobbling and maybe he's with hens maybe he's not but if you can get within 100 yards the game will change you know what i mean mm-hmm. and you might bust them on the way but sometimes on that turkey that's just not going to come or at least isn't going to come and you've been trying for a while making some sort of a move even if you don't get closer making some sort of a move that maybe makes it easier for him to get there or whatever just changing the game you know there's got to be some sort of a change that'll make those birds trigger gotcha so one of one of my favorite pastimes is scrolling instagram for cooking with ira (laughs) (laughs) do you do do you have any good turkey recipes that you'd share yeah you have any Uh, go-to recipes obviously yeah i mean fried turkey you know most people are familiar with that what i normally do is i'll take it and put like some some barbecue uh rub in there you know so chunk it up get all the silver skin off and all that anything that's shot out of there chunk it up into like you know let's just say two inch cubes or whatever something that's bite-sized and then put it in a bowl dump some barbecue rub in there a little bit of ranch uh dressing mix that up and then batter it in flour sugar and salt fry it and then the kids love it with chick chick-fil-a sauce oh yeah so who doesn't like chick-fil-a sauce standard one don't say kids i'm 35 i got that (laughs) i agree and then uh another way i do it a lot is i'll take it and strip it into like half inch strips and then marinate it in half buffalo sauce half ranch and then put it on the grill and grill it pretty fast and then put it on a plate drizzle it with honey and serve it with uh pickled jalapenos People thought I was kidding. On the next episode of Cooking, Cook, with, cooking Ira. with Ira. <laughs> I love it, dude. That's so good. Um, are there terrain? I've f- got a bunch of other ways, too, but those are probably the two most common ways we cook it. Sure. I don't blame you. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. Um, the buffalo sauce strip ones with the honey drizzled sounds right up my alley. Um, so terrain features. Have you found that there are certain things that turkeys won't cross, won't? Or, or is it just you got to tease them enough? Well, you never say won't, but, you know, turkeys are looking for an excuse not to come to you. Maybe it's hens, maybe it's fence, maybe it's a creek, maybe it's a big ravine. Um, sometimes they'll do it, sometimes they won't. I've had them fly across 100-yard wide rivers just last week. We had a pair of them fly across a ravine that was about 70 yards wide and 40 feet deep. Mm. Um, but I've also had it where they just would not do it. And I'm like, God, can I kill that one across there standing <laughs> on that other bank over there? Uh, so, you know, we, we hunted one last week also that he was in a, a pasture. There were three toms and four hens out there and this thing was surrounded by a hog wire fence. We knew there was probably a hole in it somewhere, but we didn't know where. And uh, so we just set up, you know, right on the edge of it. And Turkey walked away, set, or walked up to seven steps and shot him through the hog wire fence, you know. Yeah. So a lot of times before I really start calling, 
I, I'll try to take those things into account if I know where the bird is and uh, put myself in a position where I at least think I can kill him if, the, if he is going to get hung on something. What's your opinion on decoys? Uh, I never used a decoy. I shouldn't say never. Almost never used one on Easterns. Um, where I, where I hunt here in Eastern Missouri, it's all, almost all the stuff I hunt is big timbered ridges. And so we don't really have much in the way of fields and I'm much more of a run and gun type guy. Uh, now when we go out West, we use decoys more, but you've got a lot more fields out there, right? So mm -hmm. they can see a lot further and decoys are kind of a double-edged sword. I mean... They take time to put out. You might get busted putting them out if you've got a bird that's pretty hot. If you need to move, then you got to go pick them up and put them in the sack and then put them back out again. And so my favorite way to turkey hunt is just me, a call on my gun, and take off walking. Cool. But that's not the way I always do it. But that is the way I normally do it here at home. Gotcha. And the, the last part probably, unless we get into an even better segue, but your gun. You have a turkey gun. Well, it's retired now. Thank what? God. So, uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I had a, I bought a, a Satori Hunter, a Browning Satori Hunter, and shot everything with it. It was my only gun. And so I was shooting all my turkeys with it. And then one year I was hunting, and I shot a turkey, and I went to go hunting the next day, and I had no gun. I'm like, I think someone stole my gun. Well... I walked back up, found the pile of feathers, couldn't find the gun. I'd taken a pee somewhere. I tried to find, I, anyway, I couldn't find the gun anywhere. Fast forward three years and a guy's shed hunting and he finds my gun leaned up against a tree on a ridge. No way. With, with water up to the top of the barrel. So he brings it to my buddy and my buddy's like, oh, that's Iris gun. So I get it back, I send it to Browning Another three years goes by and I get the gun back and, and they took, you know, the, the Satori Hunter has like a pistol style stock on it. Mm -hmm. Well, they took that off of there and put an English stock on there and the gun shot about 18 inches high at 30 yards. Oh, shoot. So to kill a turkey with the gun, you had to shoot at their feet. Well, that's tough <laughs> to do if all you can see is one's head, you know, if he comes and sticks that up over the ridge and he's like, oh, there's Ira. Yeah. And you got to shoot. Well, hell, you got to shoot at the dirt, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I, I missed not quite as many turkeys as I killed with that gun after I got it back. But trust me, the road to 100 was was treacherous and windy there towards the end. And I was so happy when I shot my 100th turkey with it. I, I had a mount done with that turkey and all the beards and all that stuff and the guns on there. And so it's retired, and we've moved to lighter guns that shoot straight. That's cool. And you had, like, little notches in it, didn't you? Well, I've got uh, brass brass tacks that okay. I put in, brass pins that I put in there. That's cool. So, yep, yep. On the right side is, uh, is mine of the stock, and then on the left side is my older son's, and then on the forums, my younger son's. That's really cool. That's really yeah, cool. Man. So what are you shooting now, then? Uh, I mean, I've shot a couple with my Sweet 16. Um, most of them I've shot with Super X3 20 gauge. 
So yeah, that's what I've shot most of them with, but I've shot a few with that Sweet 16. It's so light. It's really nice to carry around if you're out west in the mountains and stuff. Yeah. I've got a, a 12 gauge Browning Satori that's got more dents and dings in it than anything else. I mean, people will be like, oh, should, you should get the the whole rib. If you look down the rib, it's like this all the way down. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, that's how most of my guns are. Yeah. I just can't get rid of it. I just. You also can't shoot it right now. Oh, yeah. It needs to get fixed. The, <laughs> the, the second barrel firing pin won't work, but that's. That's a whole nother story. I usually only need Man, one now shot. You've got a super heavy single shot. That's right. <laughs> and I love it. Um, but I bought, I'll tell you a quick story. So I've got a light 20 A5, and I had an old dog that I did obedience with, rest in peace. His name was Scruffy Max. He was uh, these probably 75 to 80 year old folks buy or, or or rescue a sh- quote-unquote schnauzer. So if you're just listening, I'm doing air quotes. A schnauzer. He was 100% pit bull with a little bit of scruff on him. He just looks sh- scruffy Mac. He just looks he was just scruffy little Mac. Little scruffy. And he was kind of a dick. And he would, you know, I got him under control, and, and they could handle him pretty well. Not ideal, but, you know, we got him going. And I go to the gu- local gun show, and I see this light 20 A5. I'm like, I, I would love it. I want to say it was 650 bucks, and I'm, I just I don't have the money for it. I leave. On the ride home, I get a phone call from Scruffy Max's owners, and they're like, hey, we're going to be gone for 14 days. Can you board Max? Uh, how much it'll be? I go, mm, about 650 They're like, deal. <laughs> I turned around and bought the Light 20, man, and uh, I enjoy that gun. I grouse hunt with it, and I'd like to kill a turkey with it, but it doesn't have a choke in it, so it's got to be you know, relatively close bird, I'd imagine. So the light 20 is going to come out turkey hunting with me. Let him eat. <laughs> Let him eat, baby. <laughs> but old Scruffy Max, every time I grab that gun, I think of Scruffy Max. I love that dog. Yeah, he was good. good oh, man. rest in peace. He bit a dude. So that's why he is no longer with us. Tough tough for the obedience light trainer. Light 20, there you go. Yep, yep, the old light 20 and Scruffy Max. But... So anyways, um, we want to touch base real quick on upcoming season and preparing slash plans for you. Where are you going and and how do you prioritize places you want to go and and hunt? Man, uh, um, you know, I was supposed to, I had an invite to go to Argentina this week with, uh, my good friends, um, but I, I, I didn't go because I, I just got back from South Dakota and Wyoming, and uh, so I'd scratch that trip. I really haven't made any plans. We're going to Cabo on a family vacation in July, uh, and I don't have any plans for the fall. I've got an invite to go, where was that? Oh, to go to uh, South Dakota in October, so I might do that. But, oh, and, and the other thing, and this is outside the box, this is unusual. I've always wanted to kill an uh, elk with my bow, mm-hmm. and uh, I've never tried. I've never done it, and uh, I did commit to doing a, a bow hunt for elk in September this year. So nice. I need to get my butt off the couch and get on 75 days hard or something. i got to drop about 20 pounds and uh, get my butt in shape for this elk hunt 
where are you going? Southern Colorado. Nice. That'll be awesome. That's a that's a dream hunt for most people, I would imagine. Yeah, man. I figured, you know, I'm 52 years old. I was like, I better get to it because you just don't know what might happen, you know. And so I don't want to go shoot one with a rifle. Not that I have anything against shooting an elk with a rifle, but I want to go for the full show, the rut, the bugling, and all that stuff. Have, one in. have you ever killed one yet? No, I've never been. Never even been. So you want to do it with a bow, never killed an elk before. That's yep. that's a good goal. How long that's are you? That's my out-of-the-box hunt. Well, that'll be sweet, man. I mean, that's – we were. I have a client that he, he goes and does that kind of stuff, and so I've been squirreling some pennies away, and I'm like, where are we going this year? We got to do – we got to do something. And, and so we were talking a little bit more in my budget would be like an antelope hunt out in Wyoming. Right. And uh, right. when I drove out to Master Nationals this year in Idaho, the pronghorn was like, I don't know, it's like the epitome of the Western range. And so I'd like to do that this fall. That's kind of the only thing I got planned. But an elk hunt in Colorado. Are you going to go self-guide, guide? guide? What's your plan? No, you know, I know so many people that go out there every year and hunt hunt public in Colorado and come back with nothing. I was like, man, if I'm going to take the time and, and go try to have the experience, I at least want to be in them and, and have a decent chance. So we're going to a ranch uh, that's private, and I'll have a guide. I mean, heck, I, I'm green as they come. You know, mm-hmm. I know elk professional so uh i'm going with a good friend of mine that's the other big reason i'm going is to have a good time you know so um yeah this first and maybe only elk hunt is is going to be that kind of deal and uh you know just i don't want to go out there and and spin my wheels and maybe not have a really you know an ex- be in the game whether i get one or not and i i don't have to kill a big one but man i'd sure like to have the opportunity to shoot, you know, a relative, a, a representative of the of the species, you know, a nice five by five or six by six or something that, you know, that that played the game. Yeah, absolutely. How many days are you going to take to go and do something like that? A five day, ten day? I think we're, yeah, I think we're supposed to be there six days. Nice. Are you d- taking horseback? God no, I'm allergic to them bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Doc DVM Ira allergic to to horses. Uh buddy, I mean they'll light me up like Rudolph's nose. <laughs> Damn. Red from head to toe. That's a tough one. You're for real. You're allergic. You're not that don't like them. No, for real, man. I had a horse growing up and never had any problems. I went to vet school and I was like, oh my God, I've got hay fever. What is going on? I mean, I was like in total anaphylaxis, taking Benadryl, taking a shower, should have gone to the hospital. And uh, no earthly idea it was from a horse. And it didn't take too long to figure out, oh yeah, it's from horses. Stay away. Yeah. Mr. Ed, what a great show. (laughs) Yeah. Stay away from Mr. Ed. That's right. That's right. Well, cool, man. Well, I appreciate you jumping on our show and taking time out of your busy schedule. You are, uh, I've said it to you a few times, but you're an inspiration as an entrepreneur and businessman and duck hunter. And, and like you, you use the word woodsman, you know, just 
your ability to be out there doing it and, and knowledge beyond your years is, is something that I, I strive for and, and, and can appreciate. Um, real quick, we never even really said the name of your podcast, so if people want to tune into your new show with, with Joe, uh, do that, please. Yeah, it's called, uh, now this is Joe's name here, which it still hasn't completely uh, resounded with me, but it's called The Grind Don't Stop Podcast. And uh, it is interesting. Um, like I said, you know, give it a listen, if, if, especially if you're young, and uh, hopefully, you know, makes you think about some things a little bit different. Yeah. Like you said, taking risks, taking a chance on yourself. Um, let's end on a piece of advice entrepreneurial business, someone wants to get into our industry, a piece of advice that you would give to someone um, that any age. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you've got to put your character first. So, you know, do things that are ethical. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Do what's right. And, um, and but at the same time, know that nobody's going to look out for you as much as you, you're going to look out for yourself. So if you think you've got an opportunity to find some success, take it, take a little risk. And, uh, you know, if you're young and it doesn't work out, Hey man, young people are resilient. You, you can just step back up to that plate and swing that bat again. And so, you know, that, that's what I'd tell people to do is, is, uh, you know, be of good character and, uh, swing that bat. Absolutely. You can't hit them if you don't swing. Yep. You got to get off the bench. Right. Absolutely. Ira, thank you so much for being a part of the show again. From from episode two to like episode 131 or 132, we appreciate you. It's been a good journey. Um, I'd love to touch base with you on a more often timeline. Give me a holler. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Golfers. If you enjoy the show and want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this dog season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.